0: Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. Oh, da ba da ba da po. da ba da ba da Hi, everyone. Welcome to Primal Endurance but just like before this is your host brad Coons. thank you for listening and also thank you so much for writing in uh, with wonderful messages and success stories getting some great feedback about the primal endurance online mastery course If you listen to the podcast and you haven't signed up for the course yet, please do so right now. I will incentivize you by giving you a top-secret 20% discount on your course registration fee. This is, by far, the most comprehensive online course on endurance training ever developed in the history of the universe. I'm not kidding. There's so much on there. There's over 120 videos. There's a couple dozen different world-leading experts on endurance training, coaching, and the great all-time athletes. Uh, There's so many favorites that I had when I traveled across the North American continent, sitting down and filming these great leaders and experts and learning so much myself and dispensing it to you. Dr. Kelly Starrett, oh my gosh, how can you beat him? Look him up at mobilitywad.com. He has particular enthusiasm and interest in helping get endurance athletes healthy and more mobile because as a population, as a community, we fall embarrassingly short on being total fitness, well-balanced athletes. And I can say that without reproach because I was one of those guys. I was good at swimming and biking and running in a straight line, uh, going very fast when I did well, but I was so fragile and I fell apart so easily and I didn't have functional fitness. And therefore I was accelerating the aging process with my narrowly focused extreme training regimen rather than pursuing all the other opportunities to become a better athlete that would have made me a faster endurance athlete anyway, getting into the gym once in a while, doing stuff like the CrossFit endurance modalities that Brian McKenzie popularized many years ago. And by the way, please go over and listen to my interview with Brian at the Get Over Yourself podcast. I launched a new podcast to cover the broader topics of health, fitness, peak performance, longevity, relationships, happiness, personal growth. So just branching out from the endurance content, I think you'll love it. I have some super interesting guests, but Brian and I talked a lot about the latest, greatest athletic training breakthroughs. I think you're gonna love them, talking about cold therapy, heat therapy, and especially a recurring theme when I'm talking to the leading experts in the world on endurance training. And the recurring theme is the emphasis and the importance of recovery. So we've been obsessed with what are the best workouts to do. We've been talking about this for decades, going back 50 years. I remember reading the early books on training when I was a high school kid and trying to become a good endurance athlete and absorbing all the amazing workout strategies and the different rest intervals and the lactate threshold values and the different uh uh, parameters that you can train on and and build the different energy systems of the body <laughs> And when was I reading some of these books? When I was so tired and burnt out that I couldn't go out and even do a basic exercise, or when I was injured so frequently in college, I was poring over the books and the exercise physiology text because I had nothing else to do, because I was missing workout every afternoon with the team, which I desperately wanted to be in, because I had a bloody stress fracture or swin sprints or chondromalacia, or mono or all manner of ills and ailments uh, caused by overtraining. So... Getting Our Perspective Straight and Some of These Great Leaders in the Scene, like Mackenzie, like Kelly Starrett, like Joel Jamison, up in Washington, who I also interviewed for a Get Over Yourself podcast episode, and he's also been on uh, the Primal Endurance Show, emphasizing recovery. One great tip that Kelly gave uh, during his interviews in the Primal Endurance Mastery course was that you should spend... 15 minutes of every training hour on mobility, flexibility work, drills, stuff in the gym, uh, balancing exercises, using the stretch bands, the rubber bands to engage the glutes and fix all those dysfunctional elements of your current stride or your technique in swimming or bicycling or running or paddling or whatever endurance sport you're doing if the world's leading expert on flexibility, mobility, injury prevention, injury healing is saying that you should spend 15 minutes of every training hour doing stuff besides just operating the motor, the endurance machine and heading straight straight ahead manner, I think it's pretty important to listen to that and reflect on it and realize how much benefit you can get. And talking about the mindset and the approach and the Balanced perspective that will allow you to succeed as an endurance athlete rather than the straightforward, high strung type A approach, because I know these challenging endeavors attract that type of personality out the gate. So when I sat with Simon Whitfield, Olympic gold medalist and Olympic silver medalist in triathlon at his home in Victoria, and he's what, 40 years old now, reflecting back on his amazing triathlon career. And he says that his main insight right now, you can see this on YouTube. YouTube we have a great 1 minute outtake but he says right now I'm coached by my 80 year old self. I asked him what he's been doing in retirement. What a profound insight. I think about that every single day when I'm making decisions about how hard should I work? How much should I uh, bother with high intensity sprint workouts uh, before I'm recovered? Is my 80 year old self going to be happy with me or is he going to go now, now, don't be an idiot because you'll be paying the price later. Yeah and then talking to Tim DeBoom in Boulder, Colorado, the endurance hotbed of the planet, and he's talking about how to manage his emotions and his competitive intensity and direct it in a proper manner and how he screwed up even when he was at the very top of the world as the reigning Hawaii Ironman world champion, but he was a little bent and stressed because some of his sponsors (laughs) dogged him or dropped him after he won the Ironman due to their budget concerns or whatever, so he's out there in the offseason celebrating his great victory in Kona, appearing on magazine covers, and then stressed as heck because he can't get sponsor deals. And how he learned and grew from that opportunity and tried to emphasize the process. And now he's like the great mountain man of Boulder where he's going out there and doing these four-hour workouts just for fun uh, off that incredible rat race treadmill when he was at the top of the triathlon world. But when you sit and listen to these interviews, never before seen anywhere else on the planet except in the course Gee whiz, no wonder I'm giving such a long commercial for the course. I really, really think you'll get great value. And people are writing in with specific ways that this stuff has benefited them. So I'm so happy to hear that. Oh, McKeeley Jones, Olympic silver medalist, Hawaii Ironman world champion, uh, ITU world Olympic distance champion. Uh, I believe she and Mark Allen are the only people to accomplish that feat. Uh, Maybe Greg Welch as well. Uh, But she was talking about dialing in her approach to win those multiple world championships all in probably fewer training hours than you're doing right now for your amateur, enthusiastic pursuits. One of my favorite McKeely tidbits was when uh, she picked a certain day of the week, I believe it was Tuesdays, where she'd do this unbelievable track workout to fine-tune her speed. That's why no one could ever outkick her in triathlon. She had a, a vicious sprint finish. So anytime anyone was close to her, they knew that she was getting first and they were getting second, I think she went out and did six 800s and was it in 224 or something crazy like that, that a top male pro, not naming any names, but a top male pro theoretically would have a tough time hanging with such a workout. But on those days, due to the extreme stress of that workout, she would stay in bed until 1 p.m. I know you can't do this at home and you can't apply that training insight directly to your hard days, but it's such an amazing picture of the dedication required to rise to the very top of the triathlon and the athletic world and how she prioritized things. And she wasn't laying there sleeping or staring at the ceiling. She said, sometimes I'd catch up on email or watch shows or... uh, write uh, letters by hand, thank you notes. She was a very Paulist professional athlete, but just the idea that that was such a high priority that everything else came secondary, where she would just stay around and rest and then go out to the track and throw down. And if you think that's stupid or narrow-minded or silly, um, we have to remember that this woman earned, (laughs) she earned a lot of money for staying in bed until 1 p.m., very professional, maximized her sponsorship opportunities, had a precise career where every single workout was uh, well thought out. Her coach, Peter Coulson, ex-husband, did a great job managing this amazing challenge of coming over here to the great nation of America or the formerly great nation of America. When she was a young lady, I think 21 years old, she just showed up here, one-way ticket from Australia and said, hey, let's see if I can have a go at the pro circuit, have a go, and definitely she had to go. She's still hanging out here and living on the beach in San Diego, living the dream, riding horses, coaching uh disabled athletes in the Paralympics and she's all telling her story on the interview and then going over into the health side and the practical knowledge that you can take to your diet to optimize. And I had great conversations with Dr. Kate Shanahan, also visiting her out there in Colorado, along with the De Boom, describing the extreme dangers of eating shit food that a lot of endurance athlete give themselves a free pass to consume just because they burn so many calories. So when you ingest these refined, high polyunsaturated vegetable oils, especially as an athlete, because you're a fine-tuned, beautiful machine, you're not a junk food-eating, cubicle-dwelling, Netflix-watching slug, you're a a person trying to get the most out of their body, you have the most refined dietary needs and arguably the less call for consuming junk food than someone who doesn't care about their body. Ooh, that's a little twist on the free pass angle of, hey, if the furnace is hot enough, anything will burn. So ditch those vegetable oils and those refined grains and sugars and pursue your athletic potential and preserve your health while you're pursuing these crazy endeavors. So how's that for a nice intro? And I'll package on to it some fun, interesting commentary from real humans out there doing their best and sending in thoughtful questions for how they can be better at endurance training. Oh, yes. Lots of challenging questions. Thoughtful, insightful people. One of them is Benoit from Perry. He says, in a recent Q&A podcast, Brad gave some special tips uh, I'm only getting five or six sleep hours per night. You said that was insufficient, Brad, and you recommended turning off devices and screens prior to bedtime. I'm so sad to get this all the way from Paris because I was hoping that uh, the late nights of artificial, excess artificial light and digital stimulation after dark were a uniquely lame American thing, but I guess it's all over the world. Oh boy. You can actually Google uh, a map like illuminated map of the globe in the evening or Google, something like that. Maybe um, we can find it for show notes and you can see the light pollution on the planet from the large metropolitan areas. You can make out New York City, you can make out LA, uh, Southern Cal, you can make out Tokyo, Mexico City, and the amount of light that uh, emanates from the globe, taking a picture from space. Yeah, pretty trippy. Anyway, Benoit says, I've started turning off the iPad an hour before bed, and now I'm sleeping seven hours a night. All right, man. That was a huge factor, clearly. The screens near bedtime are muy mal noticias. Por favor, pare, okay? Siempre, cada día. Plug your iPhone in outside of your bedroom is Kelly Starrett's tip that he gave me during our recent podcast. You'll see that on the Get Over Yourself channel. He also says, uh, after three days, oh, three days after a two and a half hour stint inside an aluminum tube filled with random viruses and germs. Can you guess what that is? The aluminum tube? Yes. It was an airplane flight. Uh, he came down with a bad cold, trying to sleep more. Uh, and then you said, I, uh, then you said, Brad, during a recent podcast that you could defeat a cold or best manage a cold. I'll say that was my characterization that you can manage it with a single day of fasting. So I did an 18-hour fast and surprised, I was pretty much over my cold in just three days. In my standard American diet years, (laughs) he uses that term even in France, so we export the sad diet all over the globe. Uh, Unlike the traditional French diet, as characterized in the beautiful book, Bordeaux Kitchen, that Primal Blueprint Publishing just released by Tanya Teshka, an absolutely fabulous look at the ancestral traditions of French cooking and how you can implement them into your own life. So go get that book. Okay, he says, cold like this, Benoit says in the old days with his bad diet, a cold would often turn into pneumonia. So I was very happy to just fast and beat this cold out. Yeah, so on that note, listeners, when you get that first sign of immune system disturbance, like a hot or stuffy head or a sore throat, my technique is to fast, drink a lot of water, of course, add salt to your water so it properly hydrates you, but to give your digestive system a break and allow all your resources, especially your immune resources, to attack the invading organism. And also when you're fasting, we know from science that this is when your body functions at its best and... The natural cellular detoxification process known as autophagy is elevated when you're in a fasted state. So of course we need to eat food, we need to extract energy and nutrients from the food, but when we're sick, what we mostly need is rest and heightened immune response, the white blood cells rushing to the rescue. And when you consume calories, those energy and those mechanisms will be diverted to digesting the food autophagy is minimized when you are fully fed or overfed. In fact, the opposite occurs, and that's a bigger question of a lifelong pattern of overfeeding or uh, regular obsessive meals uh, where you're never hungry and you're never kicking into this vaunted metabolic state of fasting. The other thing that happens when you're fasting, when you're sick, is you don't feel so great, man. You're kind of tired because you don't have any sugar rush going in when you slam that orange juice and head off to work when you have your cold. And therefore, it will be a built-in way to get more rest and make the proper decisions during that day to just pull the plug on your life, rest, relax, beat out the cold in a short time and be back in business very shortly. But if you uh, ingest calories and get that immediate boost in energy from the caloric energy, um, then you're going to head off and probably do more. Especially don't exercise when you're uh, getting that initial kicking into uh, cold or other uh, immune disturbance because that will weaken your immunity and definitely give you a better chance of getting stuck for two weeks with a full-blown cold rather than just taking it easy, don't eat, don't exercise, rest up. And like Benoit says, in just three days, he kicked this thing, which usually took a long time. Um, Here comes another one. Uh, I've been using Maffetone method for almost two years with good results. Before that, I was constantly tired and now this stuff is totally over. I've been exercising always below my math, which is 180 minus age equals 137. I'm 44 and most of the time well below when I'm commuting on my bicycle. This is math minus 30 or math minus 40. I use my bike for an hour and a half every day commuting. I'm running three times a week for an hour to hour and a half. I would like to know how we should change our math heart rate year after year. After we've built a good base, and everything is fine, should we still subtract one beat per minute each passing year? Or once, if you have, once you've built a really good base, can we keep math constant for the next few years? And that's all from Benoit and Perry. Merci beaucoup. Okay, so uh, do you want to keep that 137 for a little while since you're 44 years old? Yes, you have my permission. Hey, hey, hey. wow, they thought Brad was going to come and be hard-ass once again. You know what? Um, this is just an estimate. And remember, this is a maximum number. So you want to make a concerted effort not to exceed this heart rate. Uh, It might be even on the conservative side. Gee, thanks, Phil Maffetone, because he knows how endurance athletes think and operate for the last 40 years. So we want to have a conservative limit to make sure that you're not tempting or drifting into that black hole where you're stimulating glucose metabolism and suppressing fat metabolism. You've passed that point of maximum fat oxidation and are now into the black hole zone where the workout is slightly too stressful, slightly too stimulatory of the glucose energy systems, which will cause you to crave sugar after you're done and feel a little depleted rather than refreshed and energized. So honoring the math heart rate is extremely important. And then when it comes to someone making great progress and wanting to keep their number the same for a couple of years and then make a slight adjustment, Uh, sure, no big deal, especially when you write in and say that you do a lot of commuting time when you're pedaling at 30 beats or 40 beats below math. So for those of you listening who are constantly pushing up against the edge of math on every single workout and feeling so frustrated that you're going so slow and not enjoying it, all that kind of stuff, different story. We want to mellow things out and make sure that your workouts are refreshing and energizing okay so that's the point of the math heart rate is teaching yourself to become good at burning fat and minimizing the overall stress impact of the workout okay new question Uh, i think this might be from john dyer or uh, attached anyway in a previous show some dude asked about how we should measure our progress in successive math tests should we look at the pace of the first mile or looking at the average pace over five miles Your answer is that we should monitor average pace over the whole test. The test doesn't have to be five miles, Uh, it could be two miles, whatever. I used to do five miles because I wanted to get a really accurate indicator of my uh, aerobic functioning, and I was training for an event that lasted around two hours the Olympic distance triathlon. So don't worry about going for uh, less than that. But as you know from doing a math test, The first half lap or maybe the first full lap is going to be faster than the next three laps because uh, the cardiac drift occurs where uh, the accumulated fatigue or the effort is going to cause you to slow down slightly, even for uh, a race or a test as short as a mile. So maybe two miles would be a good goal if you can stand running around the track for eight laps. Okay, so here's um, maybe John's question. Sorry if it's not you, John, but... uh, uh, the questioner says i prefer to monitor, monitor two different parameters from the math test which i think are complementary one the pace of the first mile which is which diminution is representative of the improvement test after test of your aerobic speed and then two the difference in pace between the first and last mile of the test which diminution is representative of your improvement in terms of your pure aerobic endurance get what he's talking about. Uh, If you can improve your math test, period. So uh, you ran a mile in eight minutes, and then the next week, uh, next month, you went out there and ran a 740. uh, You've improved your aerobic power, aerobic function. And then the other one is, can you hold your pace uh, for, uh, let's say, a longer test of three or four or five miles? And that's your aerobic endurance. Interesting. Yeah. So, when you see that you don't slow down that much between the first mile and the last mile, that's another nice indicator of fitness, uh, separate and distinct from just running a faster mile. Uh, my conclusion is that it would be more relevant. This is the the, uh, the questioner writing. It would be more relevant to perform a longer math test in the future. I'm now doing five mile tests, says the reader, says the writer, uh, and then I would only monitor a minimal drop in pace between the first and last mile of the math test. I would conclude that it would be time to allow me to take five more beats out of my MAF heart rate to try to improve my aerobic endurance at MAF plus five. I don't know about that add-on conclusion, but uh, when you're that thoughtful and that careful about monitoring your training heart rate, go to it, man. That's good stuff. Thank you for uh, your input and calling that distinction uh, out between uh, just improving your speed on the first mile versus uh, charting how much you slow down or how little you slow down. Next question. Uh, David, I enjoyed your How to Swim Faster and How to Run Faster podcasts. Those were a while ago. Go back and listen to those. Those were cool. It's the first time I heard of the physics propulsion analysis uh, in relation to the swim stroke. Do you do an S pattern with your stroke? My coach, a top knob swimmer, is not a fan of S strokes. Just straight back, elbow high. Uh, What about the guy who used string and weights to keep his head up on the race across America? That was another anecdote I offered up on a recent podcast talking about uh, Paul Solon, a former Race Across America champion, where his neck muscles gave out and he was in the ER somewhere in the Midwest and they wanted to admit him. And he said, no, no, just go get me some, uh, some fishing weights and we'll tie those to the back of my helmet and rig up a strap system so that my head can be propped up so I can continue to ride across the country. And the dude won the thing in eight days. So what an epic performance, crazy endurance feat. Uh, So regarding the S strokes, uh, technically speaking, it's a way to describe the pattern that your arm travels through space when you're swimming. But what happens is when you try to implement that in the pool, it feels super weird. So I'm going to agree with your coach and say, look, just feel like you're uh, pulling straight back with your elbow high. But uh, if you kind of filmed from the bottom of the pool and watched the pattern of your arm through space, it would be making an S pattern. Even if you are listening to the coach and he says, I'm not a fan of S strokes, just straight back elbow high. Because remember, you're entering the water, your elbow has to bend, and then your arm has to extend again. So rather than get into the semantics, um, we're talking about being powerful and streamlined through the stroke. Uh, So maybe those are better swim keys than thinking about this concept of an s that's more of an academic discussion of what's happening it's kind of like uh i would make the analogy to the golf swing where you understand the lag of the wrist before you hit the ball and look at this uh slow motion video of tiger woods and his lag angle is uh, 90 degrees when his club's parallel to his waist what yeah you get that stuff in your head while you're trying to hit a golf ball it ain't going to do you any, any, uh, any, any solids, okay? So when you're swinging a club 100 miles an hour, you're trying to think of rhythm and swing keys that are more easily to access while the swing is taking place rather than uh, a freeze frame concept that's only going to mess with your head. You get what I mean? All right. And here's the uh, continuation from David, kind of a success story rather than a question. I'm a 26-year-old guy from Sweden, Sverige. Thank you for listening. Ja heter Brad. Var kan man dagens ni Oh, Arlanda Airport. Thank you very much. That's my Swedish right there. Uh, he's considering... Oh, he's considering himself an amateur or a hobby athlete. He's been doing keto and primal for about a year, slowly adapting more and more useful tools in the arsenal. Just by switching to keto, I've seen amazing improvements in endurance activities with less training. This summer, I completed a 300-kilometer bike race, that's the Swedish Vatrundan, with less training miles on the bike than the previous year. Uh, Not only did I complete it, I started the race in a fasted state, 24 hours fasted, and then heading out for a 180-mile bike ride. Listeners, are you tripping out? That's so awesome. Keto adapted, ready for action, and making those ketones to the extreme, being 24 hours fasted. Let's see what happened in the race. Uh, All I did in the race was consume water, salt, and coffee. 10 cups of coffee okay he admits that was too much and then he also had a couple scoops of exogenous ketones the supplements uh, that you can put into a water bottle and drink just like you would drink an energy drink Uh, the goal was just completing the race so my pace was quite slow it took 18 hours Uh, the fasting was just a fun experiment but this is a great way to train uh, using the heart rate monitor keeping it aerobic and following the keto primal way of eating If you had asked me five years ago when I was a carb-consuming cow, I'd never thought it would be possible to ride 180 miles in a 24-hour fasted state and consuming, again, he's out there 18 hours after fasting for 24 hours and consuming only water, salt, coffee, and two scoops of ketones. So he was a closed-loop system as Mark Sisson likes to say, manufacturing his own energy, burning off stored body fat, making whatever ketones he needed, making whatever glucose he needed through, via gluconeogenesis, and the glucose needs were so low because he was so fat and keto adapted and wasn't throwing in any sugar calories. He had a great peak performance with much less inflammation, and oxidative stress than all the other riders in the race who were slamming sugar for the duration of their effort, because fat and ketones burn much more cleanly than glucose, especially the crap glucose that is served up during a 180 mile bike race. I guarantee you, or I bet that they had pies and pastries and cakes and all the things that you see in those American long races. And if they didn't offer those by the race, probably their support crew was running around getting them uh, the fast food hamburger and fries and whatever the athlete was calling for to get through the race. So awesome, David. Congratulations. Oh, and of question at the end after his story. After hearing how it can be beneficial to train in a fasted state, something got me curious. Is there any difference in the fat adaptation in burning body fat versus dietary fat? That is, will training only in a fasted state impair my progress in fat adaptation in burning dietary fat and vice versa? Uh, You get the question there. And geez, Mark Sisson loves to answer this question at uh, live... Uh, discussions where he says, once you're fat adapted, once you've done the hard work to become fat and keto adapted, you can get your next meal off your plate or off your button thighs. It's your choice. And the message he's conveying there is that it's super easy to drop excess body fat when you're fat adapted because your body literally does not know the difference. It will mobilize free fatty acids to burn as energy in the bloodstream, and it will take those either from storage depots on your body or from fat ingested in the food. So it's pretty liberating to realize that uh, contrary to some of this popularity in the current keto scene, um, you do not require a giant glob of butter to go into your morning coffee to be a ketogenic uh, eater. And you don't require massive ingestion of dietary fat calories just because you're cutting carbs. The whole point here is for many people, uh, the ultimate goal or the primary goal is to drop excess body fat so, what you use fat for, dietary fat for, is what Luis Villasenor, keto expert at ketogains.com, he calls dietary fat a lever to achieve total dietary satiety at all times and at each meal so fat is your lever you vary the intake accordingly to your appetite and you know that you can eat as much fat as you require to feel satisfied so that a dietary transition away from a high carb high insulin producing diet is no trouble so if you have a handful of macadamia nuts in the afternoon because you kind of got the munchies or you're kind of getting antsy at work and you've cut carbs and you're trying to stick it out Go have a handful of mac nuts, open up a can of sardines, have another handful of macadamia nuts, have a few squares of dark chocolate, and you're going to be pretty satisfied and satiated such that you won't be uh, craving or uh, tempting yourself to go get a crappy energy bar and a sugar hit. Now, if you're not hungry, you don't need to eat uh, any dietary fat calories because you're efficiently and smoothly burning body fat. So you get all these benefits of being able to uh, carry out extended fasts. Maybe you like to eat your first meal at, mi- meal at midday rather than the morning. And these are all part of the wonderful world of fat and keto adaptation. So the answer to the question is your ability to burn stored fat or dietary fat is not compromised by um, the fact that you're uh, burning both of those as a, uh, a routine practice. Makes sense? Cool. Carl... Norwegian living in the Middle East. Wow, we have just a global community on this podcast. Love hearing from people all over the world. So uh, thanks for uh, checking in from the Middle East, Carl. Yeah, that's a little different scene than Norway, huh? Anyway, um, thanks for addressing my questions way back in August of 2016. See, we get back to people. We care, man. We're trying. I know the questions are stacking up. If you haven't heard your question asked on the air um, someday soon, I hope. Uh, but if it was over a thousand words, um, maybe, um, it's not going to get to so quickly. So if you're writing questions in to info at primalendurance.fit, um, you know, be concise and make sure that it's something of, uh, interest to the general audience is the, the rules and almost all of these are, they're wonderful. So, um, Hey, back in the beginning of my math training, I was obsessed with trying to figure out my exact number through lab testing, whatever. Now I've managed to make a more relaxed approach. And I've heard the same question so many times in Q&A episodes. Even though my math number is 146, I now do most of my training in the 130s or below. I'm very happy with that. I've even set my monitor to beep down at 142 so I have time to react and slow down before it goes over my actual math number. Wow, what a concept, Carl. Thank you for sharing. That's fantastic. I've managed to put all these ideas about lab testing aside and just enjoy the process, not obsess about what my optimal number is. It's all about getting out there and taking every taking what your body gives you every day, right? right. And that's especially the case when you're pondering a workout at significantly below your maximum aerobic heart rate. Yeah, you're going to get more aerobic stimulation and fat oxidation when you're right there at the aerobic maximum, but on many occasions, it's probably uh, more beneficial to just put in a lower heart rate workout and build those aerobic systems, the aerobic muscle fibers and energy-producing enzymes are still getting a workout. You don't have to feel obligated to floor the gas pedal all the way up to aerobic maximum every time. Okay, next one is from Josh. Hey, Mark and Brad, I'm following the mostly aerobic workout plan outlined in Primal Endurance. Great book! Exclamation point both to boost my amateur biking performance and to coax and sustain my fat burning. But it seems like sticking to this plan requires me to forego a high-intensity interval training workout every week or two and the unique benefits that high-intensity interval workouts can bring. Uh, You wrote something back in 2014, quote, anyone who can sprint, oh, anyone who can sprint, but does not, is making a huge mistake, end quote. So he's quoting from a Mark Stanley Apple article. Nice, man, pulling that stuff out of the hat. Could I reap the benefits of both types of workouts by sprinting every week or or two, while otherwise sticking to mostly aerobic endurance training? Uh, Okay, Josh, so in that book is also a whole chapter on periodization. So I wanna uh, create some good context here is that if you're a devoted, highly competitive endurance athlete with distinct performance goals, of completing a long distance endurance event, you're going to benefit greatly from periodization. So blocking different periods of the year distinguished by emphasis of different types of training. So you're going to have an aerobic base building period. You're going to have an intensity period where you're competing and you're resting more and you're conducting these high intensity workouts. Then you're going to have rest periods, including a long annual rest period at the end of a Fatiguing competitive season. Now, if you're reading the Primal Blueprint and the laws of uh, the the ancient laws of the Primal Blueprint, modeling our hunter-gatherer ancestors for optimal human function, you know that the three uh, exercise objectives, the laws are move frequently, uh, lift heavy things, and sprint once in a while. And we're talking about mixing those in uh, in in a general sense all the time. Like your fitness activities should include all those three things, resistance training, sprinting, and of course, low level movement, just walking, basic movement, as well as structured cardio at math heart rates or below. So first we have to take the context and look at your goals and the importance of periodization gets more and more important as your goals get more distinct. If you just want to be fit and healthy and delay the aging process, then you're gonna be looking at more of a primal approach where you're mixing those in. You're not worried about the interval session uh, compromising your aerobic development. But what we often see are these high volume aerobic exercises where they're putting in a lot of hours and then trying to also achieve uh, you know, competency in the high intensity workouts while they're putting in a massive uh, weekly training volume uh, with aerobic workouts. So it's better to space that stuff out where you take the next three weeks of this month and focus on intensity so you dramatically reduce your overall training volume, the number of hours that you're out there each week and put in more rest days, easy days, and then hitting these um, high-intensity sessions hard. And oh my gosh, I have a great show uh, on Get Over Yourself podcast coming up soon where I talk about the difference between Hit high-intensity interval training. That's the uh, term we've thrown around and it's become vogue in the last decade as the end-all for this hugely important thing. And then uh, Joel Jameson's take on it, or I got the concept from Joel, who knows if he invented the term. Uh, And I think a lot of experts are sharing this nuance and it's called HURT. (laughs) I know, that's a funny name for a tough workout. H I R T high intensity repeat training. Difference between hit and hurt is at the interval training, you are pushing your body to adhere to a uh, arbitrary timeline such as a Tabata workout where you go hard for uh, 20 seconds, rest for 10 seconds, go hard for 20, rest for 10, or the endurance athletes have all kinds of different workouts. One of my favorites was six times three minutes running at anaerobic threshold with 30 seconds' rest between the three-minute bursts. So you could perform at a pretty high level for three minutes, then knowing that you got that 30-second jog, you could kick it back up again. So by the time you accumulate six times three minutes, you've uh, done something that's, you know over race pace, really uh, stimulating big uh, improvement benefits. Uh, We used to do five times four minutes on the bike, same thing, climbing up a hill and pedaling big gear for one, uh, little gear for the next one, seated for one, standing for the other one, just to mix it up and get some uh, threshold work there, five times four minutes with 40 seconds rest. But these interval workouts tend to be stressful and require a long recovery period. You will even experience a decline in performance over the course of the interval workout because that sixth interval of three minutes duration is gonna be slower and more difficult than the first one. So what you're basically doing is sort of a competitive simulation where you're pushing your body really hard as if you were doing a race and requiring a lot of recovery time after. Interval workouts are tough. That's what a boot camp class is. That's what a spinning class is. They're slamming you, and you walk out of there and you're bathed in stress hormones, the endorphin like effect. So you feel that runner's high or that workout high afterward. And then you find yourself stopping off at Jamba Juice for a medium smoothie and a breakfast loaf, which is more calories than you burned in the 45 minute boot camp class. And then you find yourself spending the rest of the day on the couch or lounging and looking at your iPad. So the deal is that these interval workouts, yeah, they're gonna prepare you for a competitive event, but they have a very high cost for energy output, recovery, high stress impact on the body. So this concept of high intensity repeat training which as soon as I heard this from Joel Jameson in July of 2018, so uh, for the past three months, I implemented it immediately with great success. I never even thought about this for my whole entire career as an athlete, uh, the difference between hit and hurt. So high-intensity repeat training is that you take sufficient recovery. So you repeat an effort of the same quality, hopefully the same exertion level as your first one especially important for sprinting. So now when I sprint, uh, I usually do uh, four to six times 100 meters on the football field. Sometimes I would do two times 200 meters on the track and then four times 100 meters on the grass. So that was my go-to sprint workout. And because I'm an endurance athlete and I'm a tough guy, I never really rested much between the efforts. I just throw down another sprint and put out maximum energy with only a 30-second or a 20-second rest from my previous sprint. And I could do it, I could accomplish it. If I timed myself, I probably would hit 17 seconds again or 34 seconds for the 200-meter the on the track. But when I finish that workout, I would have to recover for at least you know, 10 days before even thinking about doing another sprint workout. I'd be sore the next day. I'd often be tired 36 to 48 hours later where I needed a nap because I really laid it all out there and did those maximum energy output sprints. But the the energy cost, the stress cost of not resting much in between these efforts accumulated to make this workout pretty darn tough. You get what I'm saying? So if you go out there and, and sprint six times with minimal rest, the fatigue is catching up to you, accumulating so that you're pretty, you're pretty torched when you finish. Uh, I jog home very slowly after these tough sprint workouts. Then when I uh, implemented the high-intensity repeat training concept, I would do, of course, all my preparatory work and my wonderful preparatory drills, hit the first sprint hard, and then I'd take it easy, man. I'd walk around, I'd watch the Pee Wee football game going on and do some more drills, jogging, walking, getting myself ready in a psyched-up, uh, focused mindset to go hit another sprint. So what happened was, with the extensive rest in between efforts, And then secondly, reducing the number of efforts. So now my sprint workout is simply four times 100 meters. It seems like a joke. It's such a small amount, especially for an endurance athlete, uh, but has a tremendous impact on my fitness. It has greatly benefited my aerobic endurance, even for events as long as five miles, because remember I'm playing speed golf and running the golf course, which is five to five and a half miles. So doing those four by 100 meters uh, three times a month, maybe four times a month now. Uh, I finished the workout. I'm not trashed like I was with high intensity interval workout. I feel pretty good, actually. It feels like I barely even did them. Uh, but each one was super high quality because I rested for two or three minutes or whatever it took. I'm not counting it or worrying about it. I'm just walking around and feeling light and bouncy before I attempt another sprint. And the concept, the thinking here is, I'm still putting in that wonderful work, right? I'm still throwing down some impressive sprints. I'm just not trashing my body while doing so. On a couple of occasions, I'm not gonna do this uh, uh, as a long-term thing, uh, but I tried going back out there two days later and doing another sprint because I felt fine. I couldn't believe it. I just wanted to see what would happen. Uh, Again, that's probably too much for an old guy to do, but I was uh, totally capable of repeating the same workout two days later, rather than walking around gingerly and stiffly for uh, three or four or five days after my sprint workouts, which is I've come to become accustomed to over the last 12 years because I started sprinting with great devotion in 2006. So big positive change, especially for an endurance athlete who does not need to trash themselves with a sprint workout And compromise all that potential uh, energy output for the aerobic sessions that are gonna deliver uh, your maximum return on investment for your endurance goals. So take more recovery time, hit it hard once in a while, uh, but make that little nuance great stuff. Okay, so Zach from Arkansas. So we have the Middle East, we have Sweden, and then we bounce over to Arkansas. I'm training for my first triathlon. I'm tired of CrossFit and lifting, and I want a new challenge. Uh, I'm doing my training and trying to build my endurance without spiking the stress hormones. After my high-intensity stuff, I've seen my glucose rise into the hundreds while fasted, which I thought was an indication of cortisol. But after a decent mountain bike ride and a trail run, fasted, uh, my glucose today was 70. Does that mean I'm using math correctly? Or could I be getting a high cortisol response even though my glucose numbers are low? Is there any indication post-workout that I could measure uh, to see besides glucose? Hey, man, you guys rock. I'm going to be a primal health coach soon. Right now, I'm a trainer, CrossFit coach, and life coach already. Zach Johansson. Uh, if that's a little sciencey for you guys, what he's saying is, when your glucose is high after a workout, it's an indication that the fight or flight response has been triggered. So your body has been uh, has been chartered with manufacturing a lot of glucose to support your workout effort. And we do this through gluconeogenesis. That's the manufacturing of glucose, dumping it into the bloodstream from the original source of, let's say, lean muscle mass or ingested amino acids. So that's the essence of the fight or flight response. That's why if you're in a work deadline mode or personal crisis mode for weeks on end, you're not hungry, but you have plenty of energy all day. You're wired on the fight or flight response and the constant dumping of glucose into your bloodstream to fuel your energy needs under extreme stress, uh, like a workout, extreme stress, right? So when we see a glucose number that's over 100 after a workout, uh, that's an indication that it was a tough workout and your body kicked into gear. Nothing wrong with that because we like those uh, brief intermittent uh, stressors in life to help us uh, get fitter. We just don't want the chronic stress of dumping glucose into the bloodstream all day long at your stressful job. Okay, so the glucose reading of 70 after his endurance session, uh, I'd say that's a pretty good indicator of um, being fat adapted. And obviously you got through the workout with a lower blood glucose level. It's also possible that your glucose uh, was depleted. I'd love to know your starting point. So if you really want to test this stuff, you could test your blood glucose at the start of a workout and then at the end. Um, I was a little concerned one time, I will share with you listeners, uh, because I was getting a lot of glucose readings over 100 uh, when I was into my deep keto phase and generally eating low-carbohydrate lifestyle. So I'm like, what's going on here? Am I kicking into stress response all the time? Why would my glucose be so high? I found out it's pretty common um, and so the indicator that I did that uh, made me feel more comfort was... I tested my blood glucose it was 106 something like that and then I went for a seven mile run which is actually pretty long for me uh, these days and I came back and my blood glucose was the same so I was fat adapted I completed the run without disturbing my glucose level and that was uh, sort of comforting to know that my physiology was working as desired And then I'm also uh, learning through more research and consultation with experts not to worry too much about that glucose number uh, unless you see a a, a continued pattern of uh, fasted readings that are really high and or an elevated HbA1c number in your blood work. And that's the measuring these residual molecules in the bloodstream to take a guess, a guesstimate of what your glucose levels like are routinely, not just at that very second uh, on the fasted test that you took or when you pricked your finger. So a lot of nuance here. And generally, if you're a healthy, metabolically fit individual, as Dr. Tommy Wood told me with great emphasis during my interview with him, also appearing on the Get Over Yourself podcast in the future, he said, look, uh, if you're healthy, fit, You should be able to um, handle any type of food uh, ingestion, whether it's a carb binge or a fat binge, you should be able to handle these things and be okay and not be crashed out on the couch. Uh, So interesting comment, just to look back up a little bit and look at that big picture. Same with uh, testing your values and your numbers and worrying about your ketone values and if they're high enough your body should be able to make whatever ketones you need to function optimally. Yes, we might have some variation between individuals, but it's not stuff to worry about. We wanna go back to a more simple uh, concept of, hey, do you feel good? Do you have energy throughout the day? Do you have mood swings, blood sugar swings, energy level swings, things that indicate metabolic dysfunction? Let's get those handled, mainly by cutting the crap out of your diet and doing things like fasting and improving your metabolic flexibility by challenge, fasted workouts, Uh, dancing around on the edges of your metabolic flexibility to improve your fitness. And that's where we're gonna emphasize rather than looking at numbers, because sometimes those numbers are inaccurate. One time I was pretty alarmed because I got a blood glucose reading. This is a fasted blood glucose reading of 133. So in other words, I should be on uh, diabetes meds. And I'm like, wait, what's going on? And so I took another one immediately and it was like 118. So I'm like, well, you know, that's a pretty significant range indicating that the test pricking your finger might not be so accurate. One person, I think it was Chris Kelly at Nourish Balance Thrive said, oh, don't squeeze the blood out of your finger when you prick it. You have to, It has to flow out naturally because if you squeeze it, you're putting more oxygen into it or something and it's going to affect your reading. Ah, enough of it. I'm, I'm so over um, uh, biofeedback. And that's a quote from Ben Greenfield, the most... A prominent biohacker and obsessive measurer and marker and tracker of everything. And today he says, yeah, I'm over that stuff. So if he's over it, we can all get over it and just kind of try to be healthy and notice those intangible uh, sensations of optimal health and fitness. Thank you for listening to another show. Please go to primalendurance.fit and sign up for the course immediately. Brad 20, B-R-A-D 20 is the code to use. One more uh, item of note, and I'll say this over and over on uh, Successive Podcasts, is that we are going to transition the show, the publication of new shows, over to the Primal Blueprint podcast channel as yet another uh, episode in the lineup of the many podcasts that publish there, aggregating it. So you're going to see it labeled as an endurance show, The content's going to be the same, focused on endurance, reading the questions and all that. And then the existing Primal Endurance podcast, as seen on iTunes or wherever you consume podcasts, will live there for eternity so that you have the archive of the Hundred and sixty plus shows that we've done over the past several years. Thank you, listeners. It's been a fun ride. So we'll continue uh, business as usual, except for the new episodes will be published on a different channel. So that compels you to go over to subscribe to the Primal Blueprint Podcast channel as well as uh, Primal Endurance. Okay, just a heads up. Thank you. So, Chris Kelly, Nourish, Balance, Thrive, we're we're talking about health and you're telling me a funny story about your picky four-year-old daughter that won't eat unless there's Primal Kitchen uh, condiments on the table it's true my daughter will not eat unless there's f***ing the primal kitchen Wilder (laughs) it's it's this cute thing actually she does we have a local state park called Wilder Ranch oh yeah and uh, she calls the ranch dressing Wilder Ranch dressing (laughs) there's no way we're going to correct her on that it's just too so so endearing Uh, how old Um, is she? she's four. Oh my god so she likes like the mayo on a oh yeah on. she so she loves those so we love them as well we have uh we, we eat them all the time we eat the mayo we eat the balsamic we eat the the ranch um the avocado oil we use all the time and, and so you know that's completely genuine and i don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the ass out of condiments i really appreciate that what an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish Balance, Thrive. And yes, Primal Kitchen. You can call it Wilder Ranch Dressing if you want. And uh, we'll send five cents of the proceeds over to that beautiful state park because they're they're trying to make ends meet in Santa Cruz Mountains. Thank you very much, Chris. It's <laughs> my pleasure.